Well, if you open up your Bibles, we are back in Matthew. No Eula here to give me a hard time. Oh, she had a luncheon, all right. We are in Matthew chapter 17, and we'll be finishing Matthew 17 today. And we've got, we're getting there. We're starting to move. But I don't know if you guys experience it like I do, but it's, it's a little bit crazy here in the United States right now, uh, politically, yes? <laughs> Just a little bit? Yeah. I, I had a, a much better week this week. I decided not to watch TV and uh, not to listen to talk radio. Um, that's my usual thing, but uh, this week I just uh, took a, a good break from it. It was a much more pleasant week. Anyone else do that ever? You guys need that too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm probably going to do that again this week. <laughs> I really enjoyed this week much better. But, uh, you know, that, it, it kind of raises the question, what is our role as Christians in this world? But especially in the United States, where we're in a country that we're allowed to, we have the freedom of religion, obviously, with the freedom of speech. So what, what role do we have? My sermon is not about that today, don't worry, but it's, that's kind of like the starting point because we're going to end up in a passage that starts talking about what is our role in this world as citizens of the kingdom of God, sons of the king. Uh, chapter 18 is all about uh, how we, what should characterize us as a people, but this section starts to touch on that. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about which political party you should be a part of, anything like that, um, but I, I do want us to, because this is such a hot topic and, you know, I have some friends on, on Instagram and on Facebook that I, I will gently just remind them, they're Christians, to be careful that we're not known more for our politics than for our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just read a few passages about what the Bible says about government and Christians. Uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7. And by the way, uh, Paul writes the book of Romans to who? The Christians living in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And this was, when he wrote this, it was either just before Nero or maybe at the beginning of Nero's reign. Do you know anything about Nero? Yeah, he was a vile, evil evil person. This is what he wrote to Christians in that environment. Let every person be subject, that means submit, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, <laughs> for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, submission, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For, there, uh, because, for because of this, you also pay taxes. <laughs> for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This passage has so much in it, but we're not preaching in the book of Romans, and that's not my topic for the morning. But are there some things that convict you at all about what he's commanding? These aren't options for Christians. This is what he's commanding. 
And again, the context was much worse. And so what he's saying here is actually so, so overwhelmingly revolutionary. Be subject means to submit. Rank yourself under voluntarily. Revenue and taxes. He says what? Pay them. Respect and honor are due to who? Those in authority. State, local, state, and national. Right? Respect and honor. Paul, again, is writing to a people living in a much worse environment, and look what he still says to do. In America, yes, we can change things if we think they're wrong, irrational, or unfair, right? Do we have that right? Should we exercise that right? Well, yeah, get involved in the political scene, vote, you know, be a part of petitions, you know, run for office if you want. I think that that's all totally legitimate ways to do things. But be characterized as people who are peacemakers. This is not a statement against war and going to war. It's not that at all. But we are to be characterized as what? Peacemakers. Because who's our prince? The prince of peace. The only time we disobey is when we are forced by government to disobey. Great example is in Acts. We have Peter being commanded by the ruling, the governing authorities, well, they're the Sanhedrin, they didn't have total governing authority, but they commanded Peter to stop preaching Christ. And here's what he said, well, uh, verse 18 of chapter 4. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And they went on speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. Jesus paid taxes. It's going to be mentioned in here today, but he also said, hey, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, render unto God those that are God's. It was earlier, we saw that already. No riots, no fighting, be characterized as? Peacemakers. Again, I'm not looking at any one of you in particular. This is me. I mean, I wrote about it in my you know, church email yesterday. I'm the kind that when I get start getting angry, it's riled up. And, oh. So I took a break from media this week as much as possible. As much as we like going on a certain channel and listening to a few commentators, <laughs> I stayed out of the room. Renee watched it, but I went in the other room and watched Sherlock Holmes or something or the Sports Center. Let me, let me read you a few more passages just to load on the guilt. I mean, just to load on the scriptures. <laughs> okay, you guys remember, I, I looked up all this stuff for me. So when I preach, a lot of this has to do with me. So welcome to my, my brain. <laughs> it's crazy. First of all then, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Oh, by the way, I didn't say this in the last one, but God instituted family as the, as the core part of, of society. It, it's, society is built on the family, but He instituted government to help society thrive. The government's role is to have order, to enforce law, to punish evil, protect the good, right? That's what Romans 13 said, and that's why it says in 1 Timothy 2, we're supposed to be praying for kings and those in high positions, because when they are governing justly, 
We have an orderly society, and that's a good thing. And we're commanded to pray for them, not against them, but for them. Titus 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Well, we just don't like that word, do we? America, we've got our rights. We'll vote you out. Uh, Be submissive. Is it just to authorities? Aren't Aren't we supposed to be submitting to one another in love? You all, the body, is supposed to submit to me and the elders as far as our leadership. Not because I'm better, but that's just what God said. First, you know, Hebrews 13, 17. And wives, you're supposed to be submitting to your husbands. Why? Because they're so worthy? No, the Bible says, as unto the Lord, because you honor God when you do that. Submission, if you, don't, if you can't submit, oh, God's going to spank you. And I'm not talking about wives. I'm talking about all of us. We're supposed to be submissive. Submissive doesn't mean, you know, you're a doormat. Doesn't mean that you don't say, ever say anything. But submit means to voluntarily place yourself under the appropriate authorities over you. I submit to the elders and we submit to you and your, and, and we have to submit to when we're called out for sin. We've got to submit to that too. We submit to the word. We all submit to Jesus Christ. Submission is part of the Christian life. So bring it back to the authorities, the authorities that are over us now. We are to do what? Submit to them, okay? And be characterized as people of peace. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, because it's hard to do. We have to be reminded of it. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. How many of you failed in that? <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, thank you. If I love some of you are honest, you throw it up right away. Thank you, because I'm, I'm with you. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 17. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a role in society to be God's representative here to point people to Jesus, to tell them about the wonders of how great he is, right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You guys, if you are a Christian, you are an alien. You are a foreigner. Why can I say that? We're a citizen of heaven. That's our first citizenship, our first and primary. So wherever, whoever, whatever country you live in, you're a foreigner. doesn't matter, right, if you're a Christian. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And, and by the way, how what is the one of the primary ways? Non-Christians can see Christians and if they're actually doing good, you obeying the laws of the land. Think about that. If Christians talk about love and all this stuff, but we're disobeying the laws of the land, what does that say about 
our character. Let's think on that. Be subject, submit, for the Lord's sake. Not because of them and their worthiness, but because of the Lord's sake. We're doing it because He commands us to and for His sake and His reputation. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by Him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants for God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Pretty clear, huh? Now, this again, this is not to chastise anybody. This is primarily verses I use to preach to myself when I get too worked up. So maybe this is part of my therapy. <laughs> but we are now leading into a section where Jesus is talking to sons of the king, sons of the kingdom, and how they're to live, okay? So we're starting to see in, in, as in, in the book of Matthew where uh, we see Jesus not preaching to the crowds as much. He'll still be in touch with them occasionally, but we're going to have a lot of teaching of the disciples. There's been a major shift in the flow of Matthew. Once they said, hey, Jesus, you, don't, you do this power not by God's power, but you do it by Satan's power. You're satanic. Once the religious leaders said that, Jesus basically washed, he didn't wash his hands, but the idea was there was a turn. He pronounced condemnation. He pronounced an oracle of doom on them. He had oracle of doom on Bethsaida and Chorazim, the local cities, Capernaum, where he'd spent for three years doing these amazing miracles, doing all these teachings, and they still were apathetic, the crowds, or absolutely opposed the religious leaders. He said, okay, you've had enough evidence. It's time to change. That's why he did the parables. Again, parables are great stories for teaching, but you've got to remember those were an act of judgment, Isaiah 6. They were an act of judgment because they're veiled teaching. And the Holy Spirit, once you open your eyes, you're like, oh, these are great stories. But the point is, is that most of the people didn't understand it, but he would sit there and explain it to the disciples. And that's what's happening now more and more. He's preparing the disciples because his end is imminent. At this point in Matthew 17, I couldn't give you the exact number, but it's the, probably the last couple months of his life on earth before the crucifixion. He is now heading resolutely towards Jerusalem. And we'll see that really that shift here as far as the geography now starts moving him towards the cross. So we're looking at this passage. We have to understand that as people who name ourselves followers of or believers in Jesus Christ, we have set our course on a different path than that of the world, its wisdom, its ways of success and victory. We are to be about Jesus Christ first and foremost, right? I mean, there's some churches that they are very, you know, patriotic. There's nothing wrong with that. But they talk about politics a lot. And the part that, that gets lost in the shuffle is that the politics take this center stage and the cross gets moved to the side. I don't know about you, but in the 80s, the moral majority and the, the Christian right, uh, it, it really started to define in many people's minds to be a Christian is to be Republican. And I saw this so clear as playing uh, indoor soccer when we first moved here, me and Renee, Todd too, uh, the Shears were on the team and stuff, but one of the girls, it was a co-ed team, one of the girls said, hey, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm like, oh, okay. 
What's the name of your church? Oh, Evangelical Free. She goes, oh, you're a Republican. Evangelical. First thing came to her mind. And, that's, that's, and she's not a Christian. She's a nice guy. I explained, well, evangelical just means gospel-believing, Bible-believing, and free was because of the history of this denomination. It had nothing to do with giving. It was free from government control. But I had to go through all that explanation because there's all these barriers in the way because there's been too much emphasis on politics. Now, again, I'm not against us getting involved, but as the church, we, as Christians, we have to, must be, and always should be First and foremost, ultimately, and I say it with enough adjectives there, adverbs, about that. Paul, or Paul, when he goes to Corinth, he says, I determined, I made it my goal to do nothing else but preach Christ and Him crucified. The world would say, Look, you should talk about success and all this, and how do you get to success and all that? And what did Jesus say? I came to die. Doesn't sound very successful to me. But Jesus' course, Jesus' way is a way of suffering and death. But it doesn't end there, does it? The resurrection changes everything. But here's the deal, folks. We've got to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have our opinions, absolutely. We should voice them, but we have to always have it tempered so that we have to keep asking ourselves, is this getting in the way of me proclaiming Jesus Christ? Okay? And that's, that we'll start moving into this passage now as we look at this. So, we have in uh, the first, we just read verses 22 and 23 first. Where, where was the mountain, before we have this, where was the mountain that he was, that he was transfigured on? It, it was in the north. I believe it was Mount Hermon. So, we start seeing him come this way now. Because Caesarea Philippi was the further, furthest, uh, most northern part of, of Israel as far as a city. It's in the foot of Mount Hermon. The Mount Hermon is a series of ranges, so you go further north up to the top of Mount Hermon. That's where he was transfigured, and now he's starting to move back down south, all right? As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. So we see that his mission, he's on the move now, all right? Verse 20, the first part of verse 22. We see it's a, there's a mission imperative. There's no stopping him. Luke says that he, he set his face towards Jerusalem. He's like, I'm, it's now, it's time. I'm going. From Mount Hermon, passing through Caesarea Philippi, then he's going south to the Galilee area, and we see there's a flow in the gospel narrative, a change in focus. Now it's Jerusalem in the crosshairs, the cross is in focus, and now he's got to get his disciples ready because he's not going to be with them much longer. He has left the job, or he will leave the job of building his kingdom. We call it the church age. He's going to leave his job to them, so he's got to get them ready because right now they've been totally dependent on him. So we see a time of preparation. We see it's a mission in private because they, he, he does so much more talking just to them. He gives them more details. They get more illumination, teaching, training though they don't understand everything. Again, I, I bring this up all the time. That's encouraging to me. They don't get it all, all at once. There's, there's growth. The, 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 the life of a disciple is one of growing and changing slowly over time, slow changes in different areas, right? So does that encourage you at all to see them not get it all the time? 
Okay, these are regular guys. They didn't get it. And, and for the, there's, by the way, there are female disciples too, right? And they didn't quite get it either. What, who are the first visitors to the tomb on Sunday morning? They were the women. They were the more faithful. But they even didn't get that he was going to rise from the dead. So it's still, it's encouraging. Slowly, there's this, this growing and changing. But it's a mission in private. It's a mission impossible because think about it. His mission was to go and die. It's going to be one of rejection, betrayal, and death. And it's so counterintuitive to what we expect of heroes, right? When I watch a show, you know, an epic show like, I don't know, some Avengers or something like that, we go to the movies. If I know they're all going to die, I'm not going to go see the movie. I want to root for them to win, right? And it's a mission in person because here's the deal. We're in a how-to culture. Give me seven steps to this or that. You guys, the gospel is about the person of Jesus Christ. Becoming a Christian and then growing and changing, it's always all about Jesus. That's why we're spending so much time in the gospel of Matthew. It's, it's real easy to jump over to the, uh, you know, the letters by Paul because Paul is a teacher and he's taking the new covenant scriptures and then here's how you live. But so much as we need to know Jesus first because he's our pioneer in the faith. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who shows us how to live the life of faith. Before he did anything big in his ministry, we find Jesus going up on the mountain to pray. We see him showing us the way. To know Jesus is to know life. That's why we have to know him. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. This prophesied son of man, that's the title he uses today. And, and again, I say this, I'll, let me read you the passage out of Daniel, because he uses son of man a lot, but son of man in this context is a kingly title. It comes from Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision, and he has a vision of heaven, and this is what he sees. Verse 13, I saw the night in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. That's the title. And he came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was presented before him. It was a throne room scene, and he comes on the, the clouds. When it says he comes on the clouds of heaven, Psalm says God comes on the clouds of heaven, either to war or to bring something. It was known in the Jewish mind, it was called the chariot of God. So we've got the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven to the God the Father. This is one of the passages that the Jewish mind has a hard time figuring out. We know what it is. Who is this? It's Jesus Christ in His pre-incarnate form. And to Him, the Son of Man, was given dominion. What does that word mean? Dominion? Rule. Sovereign rule. And glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He can't be a mere man because no mere man could have an everlasting dominion. This is deity. The Son of Man is King and He's God. Which shall not, this dominion shall not pass away and His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus uses this title, this this is a very significant title. He says, the Son of Man is not coming right now. He's, in, he's walking with them, and he says, the Son of Man is not coming on his clouds right now. What is he telling them? The Son of Man is gonna hap, was going to do what? Be betrayed, suffer. He said that in chapter 16. He's going to suffer, be killed, and then rise again. 
His mission of salvation, this is the gospel. Jesus said to them, and he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. This impending betrayal, suffering, and death is, is, is the gospel. It's the prophesied gospel. By the way, there's some people who say, well, this Jesus came saying this stuff, but it's nowhere in the Old Testament. It was all made up. No, it's right out of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, you look at the whole chapter. All right? It says, Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why did they think that? Because he was getting beaten and then eventually crucified. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Some say that Isaiah 53 is talking about the Jewish people, but it can't be because it says when he, it's a singular. And when it says for our iniquities, that's plural. He's God in Isaiah here is prophesying about the coming servant who would be the one to suffer for the people of Israel. It was the, one of the number one texts, this in Psalm 110, were used by the early church to evangelize the Jews because Isaiah 53 has been matched by no one else in Jewish history. He was crushed for our iniquities, what are iniquities? Sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's called reconciliation. His punishment brought our peace so that we have peace with who? God. That's reconciliation with God. That's 2 Corinthians 5. And with his wounds we are healed. So it was a prophesied gospel. It was a planned gospel, meaning Jesus says, I've come to die. He didn't do it like the day before he was crucified, like, ooh, I can see it coming. He told him from the start. I've come to, be a, to die as a ransom for many. And you can just read, there's many, of, many passages where he said that. It's a preached gospel. It wasn't made up hundreds of years later, you know, later by Christians, because that's another thing that's said by critics, that, oh, it wasn't until about two or 300 years after the life of Christ where they turned this Jewish rabbi in this small backwards part of Israel and turned him into the Savior later. It was all legends and stuff they made up. No, it's not. It was proclaimed in the very, the very first day of the church, six weeks after the crucifixion, in the very city where he was crucified. And it just blew up from there. I read already out of Acts 2, but let me just read you verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested, proved to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. When did God decide to crucify Jesus? Before Genesis. Foreknowledge. It's going to Ephesians. You were chosen in Him to be saved before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, Ephesians. God's plan to crucify Jesus was before the foundation of the world. It was a planned, prophesied, and then carried out. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for death death, for him to be held by death. Isn't that amazing? Everything planned out by God. This resurrection, the death, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection. 
It's the professed gospel. If you, you have to believe not just that he died for your sins, but you have to believe in his resurrection. Romans 10, 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared innocent, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Pretty simple to understand at least. But that's the gospel, folks. That's the gospel. We believe in something crazy. But here's the deal. It says, and they were greatly distressed. Who was distressed? The disciples. But why were they distressed? I'm going to die. What were they missing? He had just said he was going to be raised on the third day, but they were greatly distressed. So they still didn't get it. Because here's the deal. It doesn't make sense. I mean, 1 Corinthians says, For the word of cross of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. That's why I keep saying we believe something crazy in the world's eyes. But the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Amen? It's the power of God. (laughs) The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So cool. The resurrection changes everything, but they missed it, but that's okay. So did, the, so did all sorts of people. They missed it, but after the resurrection, it changed everything. I love Acts 1.14. talks about the church. You know, the, Jesus has ascended in, in Acts 1.8, and he says, hey, go wait in Jerusalem. You know, he's on Mount of Olives, which is right little valley from Jerusalem. Go wait there, and when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll know that that's the beginning. So they're all waiting there, but Acts 1.14 is cool. And all these, this whole group, were with one accord. They weren't in Hondas. Sorry. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. And here's this. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers and sisters. That's significant because before the resurrection, his brothers and sisters thought Jesus was their crazy older brother. He was the black sheep of the family. Not after the resurrection. They were greatly distressed because they missed that last part, the resurrection, but that's okay. Then in verse 24 through 27, we see the Son of Man, he starts talking about the sons of the king and the sons of the kingdom. So when they came to Capernaum, again, he's in Galilee, north part of Galilee. Now he's coming into the town of Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, Well, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him, meaning Peter, first saying, What do you think, Simon? For whom or from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, when Peter said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Okay? So that's the next scene. 
So first of all, we're, we have that movement. He's still, he's, he's coming to Capernaum. It's been his headquarters for three years. This is the last time they get Jesus. This is the last time that he's in Capernaum. We've got the temple tax question. That's what's being, that's kind of the stage here. It becomes a temple tax question to a bigger issue that Jesus uses here. Uh, the collector's question to Peter, by the way, it was to Peter. I, was, I always think it's funny. Some people, they don't ask questions of Jesus. Why not? Because <laughs> he just he comes at them, right? But who does he usually come at the most? It's the religious leader. So I, these, these guys are just collecting the temple tax and like, oh, let's ask Peter. He's the spokesman kind of guy, but man, Jesus, I don't know what he's going to say to us, right? But anyways, the temple tax, by the way, that was something all Jewish, all, all, all Jews were supposed to pay. It comes from Acts, or Exodus chapter 30. And uh, two drachma were to, was to pay for one person. It was basically two days wage is what it was. Out of the year, you're supposed to pay, two of your days was to pay for the temple, okay? It was a godly thing. Who, who created the temple and temple worship and temple, all the temple services? God did. And this was just a way to uh, help with the upkeep the, of, the, of, the, of the temple itself. And, you know, they, it's a building. It needs repairs. And you had wood that you needed for the fire. And you had to take care of, you had to pay people stuff. All right? So this is just a normal question. And, and by the way, drachma, even though it's in your Bible, drachma at this time of Jesus' time was out of circulation. And that's why we see uh, uh, the, the money that's being collected in the fish. It's actually what's known as a stator, all right? And, and why Jesus says pay for you and for me is because that actually did, that was four days wage. A stator paid for two people for their temple tax, okay? Just, just incidental stuff there for you, all right? So he's got the temple tax question. But, and notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them about that question because the temple tax was a righteous requirement. All right? It was the upkeep of the house of worship. And it is a good question. It's one of obligation. All right? That's where we start rolling into where, what we talked about, our obligations, that Jesus will use to refocus the disciples and open their understanding a little bit more. Jesus has already proclaimed himself Lord of the Sabbath. When did he do that? You guys know I like doing this, make you think back. We talked about it. When did he say he was the Lord of the Sabbath? What was the context of that? He was healing on the Sabbath, and this, yes. What are you, suppo- what are you not allowed to do on the Sabbath in, in Jewish culture? Work. There you go, right? You can't walk more than a quarter mile. It's supposed to be a day of just absolute, just rest as a family, time of worship, and just taking time off. Here's the deal. If you didn't have Sabbath in all the other cultures of the time, they wouldn't take a day off. They would keep working. Why? To earn more money. What was money? What is money even in our culture? It's our security. It's how we provide for ourselves. To take a day off and rest in Jewish society was to teach them, trust who? God. When you got your first harvest in, you were not supposed to wait till you got a certain amount, you know, all your stuff together, then take a tenth. When you first got your first fruits, that's what you brought to the Lord as your offering. Because when you take your first fruits, you're praying that your fields produce more so you have enough to feed your family. So that act was an act of God. I trust you to provide for me and my family. But that's what God wanted from them. Now, do we have a required tithing as Christians? We do not. Everyone says you have to tithe 
And that, that word actually comes from tenth. But there's nowhere in Scripture, in the New Testament, New Covenant Scriptures for Gentile Christians, we are not commanded to give a tenth. We are commanded to give generously, that's not where it ends, willingly, eagerly, cheerfully, as an act of worship, as an act of trust. I'm pouring it on, right? All that to say is that we're not commanded. I had someone who was asking me about this, and they were like, well, someone said that I had to give, give a tenth, and I want to make sure. I said, no, we don't live under that kind of law. We're commanded to give. We're commanded to. Because it says, God, our money came from you, belongs to you, and I trust that you will keep providing. It's an act of worship. It's an act of trust. It's hard. And what is that amount? That's, up, that's between you and God. It is. By the way, just so you know, I don't know who gives here. I, do, I purposely do not want to know who gives, just so you know, straight up. I'm not saying this because I think, oh, you guys need to be giving more, and I'm thinking of specific individuals. I don't know. I do that on purpose. I want you to know that, okay? But he says, give. As new, as, that's just what we're supposed to be doing because it's an act of worship. It's an act of trust. But, but on the, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But now he's saying something here when he talks about the temple tax and he said the sons are free. He's talking, he's actually calling himself the owner of that house. He's doing another God thing. He's claiming to be the one who has rights and authority over the temple and the temple tax that God commanded of Jews in this situation. We see that in Jesus' question to Peter. And G- Peter had answered yes to the, the, the question from the, from the tax collectors here of the temple tax. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. It's an issue of rights, obligations, and authority. And the sons of the king, again, that's the theme for the next section, for this whole next section we're going to be looking at. What do sons of the king look and act like? But here we have the king and his taxes. A king doesn't require taxes from his own children, only the subjects of the kingdom. The king and his house, as owner, he has authority, and those rights extend to his children. He doesn't tax his own kids. The king and his children, these are sons of the king, sons of his kingdom. And again, it's, it's talking about their, their responsibilities, but they're not getting taxed here. And Jesus, again, is claiming authority over the temple. Again, shocking to the Jewish mind, we kind of just pass right by it, but we have to think like Jews. He's making a significant statement. But then he does something. He decides to pay the tax. Why would he do that? Well, it's, 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 there you go. He, because he's God and he's the owner, he doesn't have to pay it. Even though he's a Jewish male, he's a Jewish male who's the owner of the house. <laughs> but in order to not give them offense needlessly at this point about this issue, he says, well, let's, let's take care of it. But notice how he takes care of it before I talk about the other stuff. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, go, go fishing like your usual manner. How did Peter, we see him several times fishing. Peter, James, and John, all those guys, how did they fish usually? Casting a net, you know, big area and scoop them up and you get what you get. You get a lot or a little, whatever. He says, now what? Throw it out with this day. Hook, you're going after one. He says, and the first one that comes up will be what? 
will be the answer to this need. All right, you'll find, so we see even in this, we see God, you know, showing, we see Jesus, you know, showing his sovereignty, his rule, his dominion over creation. This little simple thing. But we have to see in this section, he says, when he's, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, and he, he says, take care of it. He says, look, we see, we see his humility. We see the Messiah's humility, even here, submitting to authorities, honoring requirements of the law. We see that just real straight up. You see his humility. He didn't need to do this. We see him honoring the temple too. And, and I have, you guys, I know how you know that I have this kind of background where I want to address this is that the temple, Judaism itself, was God's way of salvation at that time. Do you understand that? How did someone become right with the God of all creation? They had to worship at the temple. He never condemned the temple. Who did he condemn on the temple grounds? The priests, the Sadducees who were running it, the priests who had turned it into a marketplace. But he never condemned the temple. He said that the reason the temple was going to be destroyed was not because the temple was evil, but because what had become of Judaism had become evil. And he was the answer now. He even told this Samaritan lady, you know, the woman at the well, he says, hey, there'll become a day when you won't worship him on your mount, Mount Gerizim, or the one in Jerusalem because of him. He even told him that. Does it make sense? We even see Paul. After the resurrection, Paul honored he made vows. He took a Nazarite vow. He even paid for somebody else's vow in the temple. We see that in Acts 21. This is when Paul is coming back for the final time to Jerusalem. And he says, and when they heard of it, the, the, the gathered Christians, they heard Paul's report. They said, when they heard it, they glorified God about all of his missionary journeys. And they said to, said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. There's a huge just revival in Israel, Jewish believers. But here's the deal. They are all zealous for the law. So they were still keeping the law of God. Now, if they trusted the law for salvation, if they trusted, hey, if I keep the law, I'm going to be righteous in God's eyes, were they saved? No. But as Jews, could they still follow the Mosaic covenant? Sure. God's law is holy and good, but not if it was for salvation. Okay, we see that in Galatians being a big topic. He didn't say, you, there's nowhere where they said, stop going to the temple, stop being a Jew. Matter of fact, Paul had Timothy, whose mother was a Jew, father was a Gentile. When he took Timothy on his missionary journey, this happened in the second one, he had Timothy get circumcised. Why would he do that? Because circumcision is required of Jewish men. Genesis 12, when Abraham got picked, was Genesis 15. Abraham was commanded, your descendants, your Jewish descendants, will be circumcised for all generations as a sign. This ethnic group God was going to use to be a sign to the nations. They still are. Romans 9 through 11 still says that God still has a plan for the Jews. Not another way of salvation, but to keep using them. So we do see something going on here. He wasn't condemning the temple, but he's saying we need to honor the temple. And showing submission to this, 
to honor obligations. And that is where it starts bleeding into our lives as Gentiles. Because we don't have a temple tax we have to pay, right? But we do live in a society where we have to pay taxes, right? Local, I don't like that. Sales tax, gas tax, this tax, that tax. IRS. <laughs> but what does God call them? Ministers of God. No, Renee. Ministers of God. We have to honor our obligations. That's, we see, that's, I mean, that's really, we're getting, we've, we've talked a lot about this, but here's the deal. The so what of this all. How would you be described, think about this now, we live in, a, in, in this culture with its laws, its obligations. How would you be described by those you work with and live next to? Just on how you live as a, a person in this community. How would you be described if they were asked? How would our neighbors, Stacy and her, her sons and Jose next door and the people around, how would they describe, oh, the two, two houses down, those crazy Beesons. Oh, they're right there. But how would you be described, just them watching you as you live in a citizen, would you, would you be described as, a, as someone who honors the laws and honors the king? People on Facebook, because that's kind of our neighborhood nowadays too, if you're on Facebook or whatever. How would you be described by those who read your posts? How would I, Chris Brunzeel? Do they know what you believe by what they've heard or seen? Let me read you this. Before the colonialists imposed national boundaries on Southeast Asia, the kings of Laos and Vietnam had already reached an agreement about who was Laotian and who was Vietnamese. Those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated their homes with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. There we go. Those who ate long-grain rice, built their houses on the ground, and decorated their homes with Chinese-style dragons were Vietnamese. The kings taxed the people accordingly, hence they had no need for boundaries. It was simple. Each person belonged to the kingdom whose values they shared and whose king they honored. May we live lives that are distinct from this world, distinctly like Jesus in this world. And remember, when he was here, he was on a mission. See, the Bible calls us ambassadors. Ambassadors for who? For Jesus Christ, for the gospel, for this ministry of reconciliation. And what is reconciliation all about? Making peace. So may we be peacemakers who honor the laws of the land. All right? Anyone mad at me for coming down too hard? <laughs> and, okay, we'll talk tomorrow. All right, let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. We do pray in, 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 these, in these areas where we can get, yeah, pretty, pretty heated, especially in a culture where we're allowed to discuss things. Lord, may we be people who are characterized, even in the midst of our, of our debates and our conversations, Lord, that, that we're even, even then we're considered people who, are, who have a, a, a guarded speech in one way, a, a speech that's measured because we, we know that our words first have to 
kind of go across the filter of, does this honor you, Lord Jesus? So Lord, uh, just help us to grow in this area. May we be more and more a church characterized by people who who are, are involved in this community, but who are, who are law-abiding citizens. God, paying our taxes, honoring those over us, in, in, whether they be the local government or state or national, and, and how we talk about them. God, I confess there's times that I haven't done that. So Lord, for, ask for your forgiveness on that. But Lord, I, I pray that we would, we'd see this and that we would see that we are sons of the King. We are sons and daughters of this kingdom, and may we live like that, live on, on a mission like you had a mission. And that includes suffering and betrayal and persecution. But God, I pray that our lives would actually look like your life so that we are persecuted for the right thing. <laughs> so God, we love you, and we want you to be glorified. And so God, change us, grow us, shape us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.